Hey gamers, quick ad break. As you probably know by now, the Beyond Solitaire podcast is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. And that is a project that I'm super excited about because I believe that learning through play is the best way to do it. And the CLGS is making it happen in college classrooms and hopefully high school ones. Part of that initiative is Games Press. If you want to back their first successful Kickstarter project, pre-orders for Monumental Consequence by Dr. Mary Beth Looney are open now. And keep an eye out for Rising Waters, designed by Dr. Scout Bloom. This is an upcoming game about the Mississippi flood of 1927, one of the worst natural disasters in American history. And I will be interviewing Dr. Bloom about it on this podcast in the coming weeks. Thanks so much. And let's get started with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the pod, I have a very special guest. I have Mary Flanagan. She is a gamer extraordinaire. She's a professor of digital humanities at Dartmouth, and uh, I'm delighted to have you. How are you doing today, Mary? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. So why don't you give us just the overview of the many gaming projects that you are currently involved in? Oh, wow. Wow. The key points. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I just submitted a book manuscript. So that is a studies of games, um, a, a book manuscript with my colleague at MIT, Mikhail Jakobson, and it's called Playing Oppression, Board Games and Colonialism. So we did a deep dive into contemporary games and also historic games that have colonialist themes and also mechanics. And that's where things get kind of interesting if you're um, into uh, game studies in general, like unpacking the history of certain kinds of game mechanics is not something that's done that often. And so we, we do some of that in that book. So that was just hot off the hands into the uh, editor's hands. And so um, that's, that's just recently finished. Um, I'm running a Kickstarter right now. Um, it's uh, for a game called Retrograde, which is a real-time roll and write uh, in an 80, 80s arcade theme. So you're like, you have these like little droid creatures on die and you're, and you're trying to uh, uh, blast your little arcade looking cabinet filled with droids. And there's a lot of, there's strategy and other stuff going on in there. So it may be one of the first, if not the first, um, real-time roll and rights, which is interesting. Um, it's uh, Anyway, you never want to claim absolutely because there's always something that we don't know. Um, anyway, we're in development for a couple other games this year. Um, and, uh, so I'm doing a lot of board game stuff right now, uh, which is great with my company called Resonim. Yes. So you have been involved in both board and video games. Oh yeah. Extensively. So is Resonim focused specifically on board games? Yes. Resonim, Resonim is focused specifically on board games. I started off as a digital game designer. And ended up at around two, in the 1990s. And so I ended up around 2010 doing a board game with some of my students in my research lab. And that ended up kind of spawning this whole new um, new area of, of work in my life. So I've done like one, two, three, four. We're also, oh, we also have a game called Phantom Inc., which is a party game based on spiritualists and spirits and mediums. <laughs> which is awesome. Um, it, it is a great fun to play. And that one's just being re, uh, released to retail right now. So, so there's, so we're quite busy, quite active with, with, with the company. I also recently, cause it was during the pandemic last year slash this year released a game called surrealist dinner party. 
and you play real world surrealists at dinner table and they at a dinner table and they're like having drama or giving compliments and you have to feed them their wine or their desserts or whatever and meet their needs and send them home and um, send them back to the dinner party. So it's there's a kind of a dinner party simulation with surrealists. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, uh, and, uh, you also, have, are you still doing work with Tilt Factor? Oh yes. Yes. I, I founded Tilt Factor in 2003, believe it or not. So it's like, wow, I've been doing that a long time. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, the pandemic has slowed down some of my research teamwork, uh, and my board game company has been very uh, busy, but we are working with the National Academy of Sciences on a game to promote scientific thinking, um, and especially evidence gathering. Um, and so we're doing a board game with them. So that's cool too. Yeah. So oh, there's amazing. all kinds of research going on. We just finished a VR project too, that um, is released on steam for free, uh, through. So if you look for tilt factor on there, um, you can find our VR escape the room game that we did a research study on and you can read about the research study on our website. So yeah, lots of stuff, lots. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I think being busy is a good thing. Uh, so, you know, your research, you, you mentioned gaming and research together. Obviously, you're a professor. This is what you study. But um, your underlying driving force seems to be that games can affect social change. Uh, is that still the purpose behind all of these newer releases as well? Yeah, so so more or less. Um, certainly at the the i founded Resonum as a way to kind of commercialize some of the things that were going on in my research lab and didn't have any any output for so you know as soon as publishers would hear oh a game that you know possibly might make you less racist oh gosh you know that's controversial <laughs> which is too bad um so we ended up kind of getting banding together as you know i was like i'm gonna start a publishing company and we're going to publish this stuff. So it started with publishing our well-researched games. Sometimes now we use some of the same principles, but we're not necessarily doing full-blown research studies in part because they're very expensive. They're very expensive and time-consuming, especially when you are at a small liberal arts college in the Northeast. Um, if you're trying to do research with students and stuff that we just don't have a, a, a critical mass. So getting enough data takes a long time and it often involves multiple institutions. Um, so it's, 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 it's an interesting uh, context in which to do studies, especially when you're looking at social psychology, social psychology aspects of, of uh, gaming. Yeah. But this does lead to the question of how could a game make a person less racist? How does well, it work? Okay. So <laughs> there's no like one, oh, I have an answer, you know, it's not like one answer, right? But certainly we have found, for example, in this game, we have a game called Buffalo. And um, it it gives you unexpected combinations. So you might uh, of uh, of a, of, a, of a person and a, a descriptor, for example. So you might pull up a card that says wizard, and then it says British, and you might say, oh, uh, you know, Harry Potter. You know, okay, that's not rocket science, right? But once you say Harry Potter, you can never use Harry Potter again in the game. And then you might have something else that's like chemist woman <laughs> and you're like ah i have to name a female chemist do i know a female chemist does marie curie count because she's yes. always the person that everyone says anytime there's anything about women in science it's like marie curie and uh, you know <laughs> so so 
But one of the theories behind this is even if you can't come up with um, uh, uh, an Iranian video game designer off the top of your head, depending on your context, because of course, if you were in Iran, you might actually come up with the, the answer, but in, in another context, you might not. But just the idea of, of being confronted with a combination that you don't, you, like that does not compute yeah. <laughs> is actually really helpful because it, it, in theory, I mean, we have no evidence to look at our, we haven't done MRI studies on this, but in theory, it kind of disrupts your, the pattern of stereotypes, right? It, 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 it's kind of, oh, when I think of a novelist, you know, I have an unconscious bias in my head. Um, and now that bias is a little bit shaken up. Even if I can't name another person, there's this idea that on a subconscious level, you're breaking up that stereotyping process. Um, at least that's one hypothesis to our data. Um, but the data did show we used um, different measures that are uh, vetted for measuring discrimination and um, this idea of social identity complexity, which is how complex you kind of can accept or see the world like as a set of contradictions. So instead, um, so social identity complexity, I could say, oh, I'm a scientist and you might have an idea in your head. But if you say, oh, I'm a scientist, I also uh, am a. I sing opera uh, at night and I play ping pong uh, competitively. Uh, <laughs> that those, That's a more complex identity. <laughs> and um, so it, it kind of expands how we see the world a little bit and kind of makes us a little more accepting, right? It's like, oh yeah, sure, of course you're blah, 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 right? So expanding the world and expanding this idea of social identity complexity is a really good thing when you're thinking about ideas about... Uh, uh, racism, um, bias in general. Uh, we, you know, if you're, if you're trying to address those issues, you want to expand how we think about other people and not um, reduce people to caricatures and stereotypes. So in other words, board games are a way to create exposure to new ideas, to new types of people, to potential identities, even if it's not anybody in particular. And that's what you are taking advantage of uh, when you are creating games that are supposed to be change agents? That's one aspect. Um, thinking about identity, thinking about representation, that's that's only one aspect. Sometimes we stop there when we think about diversity and, and inclusion and social justice or whatever. Sometimes we, th we stop at, you know, like a kind of certain kind of identity, but there are other kinds of thinking that also help expand the way we see the world. And so th it's really, uh, I, games... I mean, a lot of the his, historians and anthropologists about games have looked at them as ways that humans rehearse themselves in the world, right? So they're rehearsal sites. It doesn't mean that they're actually training you to be one way or another. But after, gosh, you know, almost 20 years of research in the field, I have to say that I am surprised how malleable <laughs> we are <laughs> at... At, you know, before and after an intervention, when you see the kind of, you know, statistically significant changes, you're like, wow, everything we're experiencing is kind of, you know, moving us around a little bit. And, 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 and that's, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of surprising, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, increasing exposure to new ideas through games does, in fact, work in the sense that it has an impact on how people see the world after play. According to what I've studied, yes. Oh, I like it. So I guess my next question then is, 
So I'm a teacher. I think about this all the time when I'm trying to do fun stuff with my students in the classroom, but also get them to learn at the same time. It's like having to be really careful about how I set up my fun because the more, I guess, ham-fisted it is, the less it works. You have That's to correct. make sure that the fun part happens and that they don't feel preached to. So how do you manage that in games that, you know, you are explicitly designing as a study of how, of how mindsets change? Liz, that's a very that's a very astute um, uh, observation. We play has to be free, right? It's one of the definitions of play by anthropologists like Brian Sutton Smith or Johan Huizinga. You you have to enter into it voluntarily. It has to be uh, free. You have to be able to make meaningful choices, right? Um, all of these things, if you're saying, okay, I'm going to make you play this game that's teaching you this, is not really embodying any of those values, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you have, so it's, it's really difficult. That's why not a lot of people do it. <laughs> because, um, you know, to do it well is really, really difficult. I've had 20 years, 30 years, or whatever, a lot of years of trying to figure this out. And it, it, it's there's no one easy uh, solution. You know, it's not a pattern that you can follow. But what I can say is that sometimes, and, and that, that, that feeling that you're getting, um, like the resistance is called psychological reactance. It's like, okay, no, that's like, you're causing, you know, I'm shutting that down too much. I'm not doing that. No way. Like there, there's this kind of uh, refusal happening. And so what you're trying to do is get around psychological reactants, right? And that happens also, by the way, not just in games, but let, let's say, let's say, for example, um, you have uh, a, a documentary film and it's about it's featuring poor people in a faraway place and, and, and it's really difficult and life is really challenging. And you might be like, wow, wow, that's really, you know, how can we help? What can we do? I mean, we see, you know, we could also talk about current events and feel that same, oh my gosh, what can we do? But you might have a documentary and it's showing your neighbor next door or people on your street having the same kind of problems or someone who's homeless and uh, is, you know, right next door. And you might be like, well, you know, they should get a job or they should, you know, sometimes people react to things that are too close by shutting it down mm -hmm. because it's too close and you, it's like an overload. And that that's where this whole theory of, I'm simplifying this for all of you psychologists out there, but and I apologize, <laughs> but, but it, it, it is a, it is a way in which, you know, we react and we are open to things literally psychological distance, literally further away <laughs> or further away in terms of fiction, right? So we did this one set of studies with this game called Pox and it was a board game. It was an app, a digital game. And we did a version that was a board game that was zombie themed, okay? <laughs> so we've got this like spread of disease on the board. You're trying to contain the disease. It's, it's, um, it actually came out right around the time the pandemic came out, but it's a super simplified version of, 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a pandemic. And we studied this game in a variety of contexts and um, with pairs of players who were randomly assigned and, and, every, and it was very systematic throughout the different conditions. And it was really wild because when people had the digital game in between them and they were playing the digital game, people spoke less to each other. They lost the game more often, huh. <laughs> significantly. And they, um, 
And they actually had lower scores on some of these things. Like, would you, you know, like a, uh, like a, a survey, would you give money to a, you know, a, a public health group or something like this. So, so, so we had different kinds of measures and they did not perform very strongly. And the group that performed the strongest was the zombie group. Okay. <laughs> so we learned a lot through that. We actually learned a lot. Sometimes being open to a zombie apocalypse actually opened people's minds to thinking about, well, how would I solve public health? It wasn't threatening you know, to, to think about it because it's fiction. No one employed any of this kind of <laughs> research in the handling of the pandemic, um, which is a bummer because, you know, everyone's like, how do we get people to wear masks? How do we get people to think about getting vaccinated? And no one really used psychological um, uh, principles. Uh, to the extent that we uh, we know about, we know a lot about how we react to narratives, first person versus third person narratives. You know, th there's different ways to tell stories that are more or less effective, and we, we we actually know a lot about that as a society. But very little of that of that research actually translated into the way in which, um, for example, our public health messaging happened. So th there's a lot of lost opportunities where research doesn't actually get um, into the hands of people making decisions, uh, and and um, you know people's lives are at stake sometimes, and it's really quite disturbing. So that involves games, but it also involves other kind of messaging as well. Yeah, I'm interested also that story has come into this. So what I'm hearing from what you said is that um, people do have the ability to change their minds about things or open up their mindset, but being very blatant about what exactly you're asking. Like you need to go outside and wear a mask. You need to go and get a shot. That's not going to be as effective as let me tell you this story about zombies that you really identify with and get into. And then let's see how you feel about taking a measure, you know, in our world now. I mean, is that what I'm hearing that people actually respond better when they've had time to think away from the reality of the problem, but like something that's adjacent yeah, people's minds can change when they when they consider some of these some of these like fictional stories, for example. Um, also, if uh, I mean, there are also other things like you know policies that require something. You know, I mean, there are other ways. <laughs> you know, yeah. but we because we we've you know the United States has done that in the past. We've actually had you know required vaccinations, but but if you're really trying to deal with motivation. Um, then we do have to think about what are ways that we could approach that. So yes, ha having stories. My um, uh, my uh, collaborator Jeff Kaufman, who's now at Carnegie Mellon, has his. He did this really great research about um, voting, and he had students read, um, pay, you know, like short stories about why someone really couldn't get to vote. They couldn't get to out there, but then finally they did. And whoever read different stories, the conditions were quite interesting. And he was actually able to track who voted because the voting records were open in that um, in that jurisdiction that he was doing the research study. Right. And he was able to find that people who read a story first person about overcoming the difficulties, who was like them, who was more like the students. And that's very interesting. So someone like you, who you can identify with, making decisions um uh as a, even as a fictional thing was very very interesting 
So there's a lot we don't know about, for example, games help us be like a lot of people talk about, Oh, VR, it makes us more empathetic. You get to stand in someone's shoes. Not necessarily. Uh, we don't have a whole ton of evidence that that is always the case. When you, when you are in VR, you might feel um, reactive. You might be feel forced to look at something that you didn't want to look at. You might, we don't know. So, so I think we have to just, uh, you know, assume very little <laughs> and approach these things with open minds and say, wow, you know, and, and, and do the research specifically about, storytelling and narrative as it relates to psychological change. It's really fascinating stuff. My, co my collaborator, Melanie Green, also works in this area. And it's, it's amazing stuff. She's at University of Buffalo. Oh my God, this has so many implications for everything. I'm just fascinated. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> well, <laughs> the other thing that makes me sad about this, though, actually, is that, you know, the emphasis on story and fiction and it actually having impact, it's something that I feel the loss of in our day-to-day -day conversations about what is important. Um, you know, I'm really big on reading novels and on playing games. And I feel that, in a way, a lot of those things are kind of downgraded in our culture in favor of facts and just give me the facts and I can do my research. But it seems to me that that's actually not necessarily the thing that's going to have the most impact on what you choose to do. Uh, do you face pushback as a researcher because of that? And how do you... Well, no, because we, we have facts about the fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so we still have facts. True. <laughs> if we just hypothesized, yes, we would, people would just be very upset. But um, yes, we actually have research studies where we can actually show these things. But of course, you know, that's also just to play devil's advocate on research, right? Like that's social science, how social science measures things. Humanities folks measure things in a very different way. It's about argument. It's about, you know, perspective. It's about even the language you use and the, and the analysis and the close reading and semiotics and uh, Marxist feminist queer, you know, like we, we can, we, we have totally different ways of analyzing, right. And coming up with facts. So that's also very interesting as uh, someone who sits between creative fields, scientific fields and humanities. Like there's a, there are very different kind of ways that, that, uh, information is valid. Mm. Yeah. But that takes us right back to the idea of stories as inherently true in a way that other things don't strike us as true. Hmm. Yeah. So how very do you translate powerful, very powerful? How do you translate all this into a classroom? I mean, Ooh. you've got this whole you've got this amazing research life. Um, yeah. How, how do games make it into your classes? Well, I'm I'm fortunate enough to teach um, at Dartmouth College, where I I'm able to design my classes the way um, the way I'd like, and so I often teach my game design class as almost a rapid prototyping, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say boot camp because it's militaristic and it's not really the way it is, but it's like a, a, a kind of a rapid fire uh, prototyping lab where every week. I assign a new problem. For example, design a game that tackles uh, anxiety. What? You know, <laughs> really hard things, you know, or like, a <laughs> yeah, it's some of them are very hard. So, um, or bullying. How do you reduce bullying with a game? Could you, could you do that? Is that possible? How could we um, uh, 
promote reproductive rights in a game? How could one, you know, so, so students have to prototype something and they, and, and it often is kind of a rough prototype because they have a week <laughs> and in a week, you learn a lot <laughs> about what works and what doesn't. You, uh, what I'm trying to do is almost have people learn to fail because part of any kind of change and being able to do this stuff well is to be able to throw things out. It's it's just as valuable to see what doesn't work as what does work, right? Like so, so all of that is very important. So you know, sometimes people get really. Um, really uh, stuck on an idea and it's like, ah, oh, this will be my magnum opus and I will have this. I'm, I'm my vision is for, and it's like, let's just make a little thing. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, let's just get it. Like, just get it. Try Try stuff, try stuff, low investment, because that, that you can let it go when it doesn't work. And that it's much better to have like this kind of iterative um, pattern, uh, pattern language develop. So yeah, that's how I, I, I teach. I, you know, and we read studies, but, but I often just bring in researchers to talk about it because really, if you hand out all of these scientific papers, some students are really going to bond with that. And other students will be like, I have no idea what this does, how this relates to World of Warcraft. I could not make that leap. <laughs> <laughs> I am not, you know, I, I, you know, you just can't, you know, and, or, or I'll have the, the, like the, the one student who's like a dwarf fortress person, you know, <laughs> be like none of this relates to dwarf fortress, you know, so it's like, how do you, <laughs> so yeah, we have to kind of be, uh, it's, it's, it's more like a, a taste of, of, of iteration and rapid prototyping, but certainly, certainly you can use games as a way to explore you know life and 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 playing them and even looking at their development practices and looking globally right because what we're lucky enough right now to be having a a, a global um, connection with so many people through crowdfunding and through um, through you know steam being so available and other places we can get digital games you know further and faster than ever before and we can also, find all of these, you know, unique developers with unique points of view uh, coming out of like Kickstarter and these, uh, these other communities. Um, so that's great. We, we wouldn't have had those games, uh, you know, 10 years ago. So I'm very excited about the state of games and play right now. Yes, there's actually a couple directions I could take this, but I'm going to start here, which is, I think is really interesting. You're mentioning, you know, Kickstarter, crowdfunding, you know, I think a lot of academics see their work as within the university setting and within academic circles. How do you think that your work is impacted by the fact that you're clearly very much between worlds? You're you're doing work and you're taking information and you're marketing your work in, in spheres that are not considered traditionally academic. Does that change the way that you approach your work and the impact that you think it's going to have? Wow. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I, um, I always try to contribute to academic learning and growth with scholarly articles, reviewing scholarly articles, giving presentations about the work, you know, uh, writing both from this more scientific points of view and from the humanities points of view about games and play and, and um, inclusivity and this kind of stuff. I try to co contribute there, but it's never been enough for me to stay within academia because I, um, I 
make things also as an artist, right? So I, I show things in art galleries and and not in not in, in museums around the world. And so I, I end up with a totally different groups of people. Like I go to Gen Con and that is a not and then I'm like at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Barcelona. Okay. And they're like, okay, you know, like these are very different worlds. <laughs> I like that continuity, continuity though, because it means that people are engaging with ideas in different ways, and um, they're all equally valid and, and unique and interesting ways. But they're different audiences, and so sometimes my work. This is a, a question I got recently at a, a talk I gave. It's like there was, a student was like, "How do you decide whether an idea is art or whether it's a game or whether it's a research project?" And I was like, "Wow, <laughs> wow." Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have like a chart, you know, where I like looking it up and like, okay, well, that idea. <laughs> it's just kind of how my brain works. Like, for example, I have these. Uh, here, I'll show you. I have these. <laughs> here's something, you know, like here. Here's two. Here are two things. I have visual aids for you. All right. So I have these like Rubik's cubes that I've been making. <laughs> So for, yes no. are, so for those of you who are listening, that was a Rubik's cube with letters on the faces that said we oui and non. Right. And then this one, try to describe that. So now we are looking at a Rubik's cube where the letters, it's not one letter per cube. They're like bunched up at weird angles and sometimes across cubes. Yeah. Like jumbled, jumbled. Uh, and this, it all says we, 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 and various things. Okay. So that, is that a game? Is that <laughs> art? Um, you know, I, I don't really think about that. <laughs> I, I, I just make it, you know, well, our and, games and, and aren't really separate. Well, in some ways they are. Um, well, in the sense of, in the sense of, is it a visual art piece and only, only generally through audience. Um, and I'm, since you like ancient history, I'm going to even go back way before, um, ancient Christianity and we're going back. <laughs> okay. We, Humans, you know, and proto-humans, right? Not just humans, Cro-Magnon, whatever, uh, created artworks, right? Like people, like it, it's not just humans who created artwork. Artwork was created by all kinds of humanoid um, uh, folks. But we also played games and sang music, right? So, so I think of games and play as kind of in this er form, like we have visual art. You have sound and music. We have story and narrative, and we have game. It's kind of in that cloud, right? It's yeah. that level, game and play, because playfulness can can you know can be gamey, and and so I think sometimes we forget that. Like it's like oh well, it's uh, I'm playing this video game. It's media. It's pictures. It's moving. It's animation. It's this and and no, <laughs> it's actually. An er art form, it's referring, it's not, you know, medium specific, but the er art form about a system with rules that there's a winner or a loser or there's a tie or there's a negotiation of power or there's a, you know, a, a, like that's an abstract space that is um, really interesting. And I wish we had more artifacts that were ancient to be able to explore this stuff um, further. But, uh, you know, when I think about these cards I've developed, right, like I, I have this artificial intelligence that I trained on the work of women artists. So it only produces work from this kind of point of view of women artists. That's a, another long story. But um, I so then I start printing out some of these um, 
these images of these artificial intelligence uh, generated clouds, right? So I have these, I have this card deck of clouds and I'm like, is this a game? Is this an artwork? Like, I don't know what this is yet. So this is just like a prototype of something. I know I wanted it to be like a, a physical object, but where it goes from there, it, you know, it could go in either direction of being something more conceptual and open-ended, um, which I would say something like the jumbled Rubik's cube would be, right? That's kind of not really, a, it, it is solvable, but is that the point? Um, <laughs> or is it asking a set of open-ended questions or troubling or, or being critical about or reflecting on what a, what a game or a play space is? So yeah, really, really. Oh, here's another, you know, you asked me a recent thing and I totally forgot this book that I, that I, um, I just put out last year and, and we had a book launch in Berlin and then Omicron and pandemic went really deep deep out so we weren't able to uh, do very many events but it's a uh, a book of my hopscotches that i've been creating for 20 years possibly over 20 years um and it's in three languages and it and i describe their instructions for various hopscotches and they start off very kind of poetic and and um uh, uh what do you want to call it like Kind of abstract and poetic and then they go into kind of critical stuff um things about um uh, income uh inequality uh uh state violence this kind of thing so an early version of this would be city scotch draw rooms on top of rooms on top of rooms so that's an instruction and people are given chalk and they do something with it and um, think about it, what it what it means. And so this is a little handbook for these kind of abstract um, ab abstract um, hopscotches. And I'm bringing that up because, again, is that it's, it's not really even medium specific. It's a conceptual space of using a game as a conceptual space, and that um, that really interests me. No matter how I, it comes out, I find this really fascinating. It seems like in your own art, it's, it's very exploratory. Like you have an instinct maybe, and you follow it and kind of see what happens. Uh, whereas, you know, I mean, and this is obviously going to have to happen, you know, in the self-contained class, uh, you're asking your students to design games that have specific purposes, reduce anxiety, yep. fix bullying, make people open to vaccines. I don't know if you've actually done that one, but yes. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so how do you, I guess, reconcile making a game with a specific social purpose with games in that more artistic exploratory space? Well, this goes back. I, I think it's a really great question. And some schools of thought really separate ideas of art from ideas of design. Right. And a shorthand for this, and most, many people might not agree with this, but a shorthand for this has been designers solve problems, artists, cause problems <laughs> right designers are thinking here's the problem here's here's how i'm going to move around in that space um artists might think oh, here's where i'm you know it's, it's like a top down bottom up maybe kind of kind of uh, uh approach but that's really a rough 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 way of thinking about it and mo probably in practice most designers and most artists probably don't 
do that. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, these are real weird generalities, but certainly if you were going to an industrial design firm and you said, I need a, you know, a, a chair that's like going to do this and it helps me stand up. And I, you know, if I like I want to have a chair designed for a particular ability, you know, that's a, there's a problem to solve. Right. And when I'm saying, oh gosh, uh, we, we want to have a game that tries to uh, make people more open-minded. Yeah. That's a problem to solve, but how we get there and maybe this is why it works so well. How we get there may not be a direct, oh, I have an answer for this, <laughs> you know, because some of our problems are very difficult and very intractable. So, so I think you need a little bit of both. You need to be able to go, well, I don't know. How about we try this, you know, experiential thing? How about we, we do something, um, you know, uh, that's kind of out there. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would have gotten to some of the quote data that we had talked about earlier without having that sense of exploratory right. stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know if I would have gotten there. Interesting. So I, I'm, I've, I feel like this is, I'm just fascinated by this idea of like research showing that games and stories can really impact outcomes. And it seems like in your classes, right, you're teaching students to do that deliberately. I'm going to make a game about reproductive rights. I'm going to make a game, um, you know, that impacts, you know, X thing in a person. A lot of hobby games and hobby gamers will say that games are just for fun. Oh, I just had a really good idea for a mechanism and I, you know, pop the theme on there and it's, it's there for my relaxation and enjoyment. Um, so I think a lot of games claim to not be there for any particular purpose other than to be enjoyed. Do they still say something? Yes. Can there ever be a game that is just a game? No. <laughs> games carry games carry meaning in them, whether the designer intends that meaning or not, right? That that is the responsibility of a designer to look at it with open eyes. Um, let's just talk about chess, okay? Everybody, that's something that everybody's seen, played, or whatever, right? Okay, chess. Oh, it's just a game. It's like two sides. It's like a war game, whatever. I'm going to win a strategy. And yeah. Okay, well, let's unpack it some more, right? Chess has a social hierarchy built into it. It has a royal family. It has servants of the royal family and advisors, right? It has the plebeians, <laughs> the everyday people, the pawns. And they're less valued, right? There's a lot of them and they're less valued. They're expendable. Um, in, and the, the, the most important thing is to save the, the ruler and not the people. Um, conflicts have two sides. And one side, um, uh, is there's only one winner. There's only gonna be one winner, one outcome. And um, that uh, total annihilation is fine. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff packed into that game if you just unpack it, you know. Um, it's easier to do because psychological distance. <laughs> it's easier to do because it's an old game and it's like, oh, yeah, and I didn't make it. <laughs> so can you do that with your own games? Can you look at a game that you've made or you love to play and can you pull out its values and can you, can you, it doesn't mean you have to throw all, you have to burn all your games or anything if they have a problematic thing in them, but it's good to know 
um, with open eyes about the kind of structures and assumptions made around you so that we can actually be aware of them. We can talk about them and we can change them. Yeah. I think that also takes away the opportunity to say, well, I just wasn't thinking about it. I didn't think it was a big deal. I just did what I felt like doing. Is that so wrong? And I mean, it's not wrong, I guess, but you should be thinking about everything that you say has, I mean, everything that you make says something about you and and what you think and how you see the world. Right. Right. And also, I mean, you don't, I, I don't think anyone, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but I, a majority of designers would, would, would not want their work to do harm. Right. So I think that, um, that that's something we just have to kind of look at and, and, and educate designers to, to, to be, to have a critical eye. Yes. And I guess my, uh, my last hard question, <laughs> it's not really hard, uh, is, is that um, in, I guess in a world where we know that games could do harm and where we can deliberately design them in an attempt to do good, um, you know, is that, is there anything about that that is manipulative? Especially if you're taking something like your zombie game, right? That you want to have outcomes, you want to create outcomes that impact how people understand disease and make them want to do certain things. And you knew that when you made the game. Is there anything about that that is, I guess, taking away somebody else's consent or that is it's an interesting question yeah what's the ethical line between what you know about the thing that you're sharing and how how much you share about that it is an ethical question it and it comes up of course uh, beyond games it's coming up right now and all the fake news stuff like like (laughs) and all the you know um, there's just so many sources that are that are uh, questionable, you know, like the whole idea that the a butterfly preserve in Texas had to be shut down because of um, conspiracy theories about a butterfly preserve is a very sad, <laughs> a very sad thing, you know? So, um, so yes, I, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, at what point is something propaganda and kind of manipulative? And at one point, is it, um, is it uh, kind of doing good as a kind of wholesome thing in the world, right? And who gets to decide that? Those are open questions. You know, I don't think there's any, we, we haven't had cultural conversations about that. You know, there, in motion pictures, they used to have these committees, you know, where they would do something rated R, and but, but they didn't talk about, you know, political propaganda or ideology or these kind of, you know, like, um, and in an increasingly polarized world, we probably need to have more conversations and limitations about, about that kind of stuff. But there's a other side to this, right? If people are consciously designing games to, you know, make people open-minded and, 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 you know, who am, who am I to actually think that that's a good thing? And, and what is my definition of open-minded and my science behind it? And so therefore, should I not do it? And therefore, we have no social, like none of us are really allowed to engage in social change because it would be presuming that other people um, would benefit or share from us. So these are, it, it's, you know, they're in a, in a time when we kind of want an answer and we want to say, yes, that's good. No, that's good. You have no right to do this. You have the right to do this. This is, this is a very difficult kind of conversation because we don't really have um, 
a consensus about about that. Now, we're totally fine with buying a whole bunch of stuff from commercial companies that are intentionally designed to have us buy more and use more resources and materials and forced obsolescence. So we have to buy another one. And we're, you know, we don't, we don't really protest that stuff as much as we might want to. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, we eat food that is designed to be addictive and to make us want more food. Yes. And video games, um, you know, there have been plenty of examples of video game designers having to work with um, uh, gambling uh, experts to keep people hooked on games longer. I mean, it's a huge controversy and behind the scenes and some of the big game companies about um, keeping people hooked on your game and, and uh, gaming and addiction. And, you know, it's, I've had friends, you know, put something out and then they're like, is it ethical that this person just spent 62 hours nonstop playing and spent uh, $200,000 in my game? Like, I don't feel good about that. (laughs) Even though it's great that they spent a lot of money, I don't feel good about what I just put out in the world. You know, like there are lots of, lots of questions that, that we um, have to have conversations about, which is why it's great to have um, one with you. (laughs) Yes, and I very much appreciated this conversation. So a couple of fun softies was the end. What are you playing right now for fun? Ah. Hardest question of the interview. <laughs> Actually, I've been playing our own my Phantom Inc. I I kind of can't get enough of that game. It's it's you know, it's great if you make a game that you love so much you just want to play it a lot. <laughs> so in fact, every party I'm playing that. And I normally don't foist my games upon other people <laughs> unwillingly. <laughs> but Phantom Inc. Totally. No problem. And of course, because we're running a Kickstarter campaign, I've been playing retrograde die uh, on Tabletopia, like virtual hands, shaking those virtual die (laughs) (laughs) left and right. So I've been playing a lot of that. Um, So it's for fun, too. So it's good that you like what you make. It's good. (laughs) Definitely. And then uh, for people who are curious about your work, where can you be found online? And don't worry, I'll be putting some links in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Well, so the my game company is resonim.com. Uh, my research lab, where you can find some of the research studies behind some of this conversation, is at tiltfactor.org. And my uh, general website for all things Mary is maryflanagan.com. I'm also on Instagram, Critical Play, and Twitter, Critical Play. Excellent. And I, those of you here listening probably know this, can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Thank you so much for watching or listening, everybody. Leave us some likes, some comments, some questions. And most of all, happy gaming. Ciao.